Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. Did anybody say um, how many pull-ups you got now, Tommy? Did anybody do that? <laughs> there were people in the crowd who, who, uh, who stopped me and said hi, I read your book or whatever. But, um, so great. So great. But it, yeah. You know, I went to Caddy for Andy Norris and Tom Watson and um, Neil Oxman and I in the Liberty Mutual Senior Tournament down in Savannah. And uh, one of the announcers said, this is the only group that has eight majors and three Pulitzers. (laughs) (laughs) The Tony Kornheiser Show is on now. Tremendous treat for me to have Tom Friedman on to talk about golf and not anything else. Um, Mike O'Brien from Boston, formerly Revere, says, I love how Bryson asked somebody who is way more accomplished than he will ever be if Tom Friedman wanted a picture with him. I feel like you did that after golfing with President Obama. Obama finishes his round. Mr. Tony hands him a signed copy of his book, and you ask if he wants a picture with you. And you say you're welcome, and you walk back to the car. I think that's, you know, uh, a rare treat for me to have Tom Friedman do that. And Tom and I and Michael are going to go play golf at some point fairly soon, I hope. Got a lovely painting, a lovely new painting from George Oh, Malay. the watercolor. It's just beautiful. This is a painting of essential quality. And he writes... Your conversation last week with Peter King was so much more interesting than talking football for this reporter. I would not for a moment pretend that I am the same person as you two, but my first job after graduating from the University of Delaware was at the Associated Press in New York City. I was fortunate to be a classmate of Felicia Rappaport, the daughter of Ken Rappaport. I don't know if you knew Ken. Indeed, I did. But he was a great baseball scribe and a kind mentor to me. He coached me up on the AP writing test after helping me get an interview. I passed the test and got hired as a news clerk or desk assistant. Mostly I ran out and got coffee from my boss, Hal Buell who was the assistant general manager for news photos. When I wasn't doing that, I was begging New York bureau chief Sam Boyle to let me write some copy on any story that a photographer had been assigned to without a writer. The debutante's ball fell in this category. At any rate, although I have now been in television for decades, I still have romantic appreciation for smoke-filled newsrooms and the sound of manual typewriters banging away as deadlines approach. On another note, this watercolor on the card depicts essential quality at morning gallop. Perhaps I should send one of these to Andy Beyer, as his speed figures allowed me to hit the superfecta in Saturday's Travers Stakes. It's absolutely beautiful, isn't it, Michael? Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. We just George is a horse laugh. Guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So let me let me get to the open, and let me also say that we are we are taping this show completely out of order. The guests that you will hear later have already been taped because they had to go at certain times, and we could not start the open in the normal order that we do. But one of the things I wanted to get to in the open, because both Sean and now Nigel, Nigel is in a hotel in New York, but Sean lives in New Jersey. You were around, and Nigel is working at the U.S. Open these two weeks, and you were around for the horrible remnants of Ida, Sean, you told me before we went on the air how much rain fell near where you were. It is amazing. If you would tell that story, people can appreciate how bad it was. We had close to eight inches of rain. I think there was an hour where there was three to four inches coming down. Uh, It overwhelmed my sump pump system, and uh, we just got the basement dried out from like eight inches of of water uh, late last night. So now it's hauling stuff out and, and getting it all cleaned up and... Uh, I, the water remediation people I talked to said, yeah, you're about the 125th call we've had this morning. Sure, so. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, Nigel, you were at the open. A lot of people, including Frank Isola, who I did PTI with yesterday, said, I can't believe they didn't stop 
play and send everybody home before it got to be so awful. What were your thoughts on that? What did it feel like and look like? Well, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly understand that sentiment. Um, I, I don't... I, I don't think that people necessarily understood how bad it was going to be. And by the time it did get that bad, they eventually flashed signs up on, on, in the court on Louis Armstrong and said, you can't leave. Like, everyone has to stay here. I mean, the matches were still going on for quite some time. And they were like, you, the roads are closed. The Long Island rail system is closed. The number seven is closed. So it was like, you basically have to shelter in place here. And it was... It was as fierce as weather as you've ever seen. I mean, I, I, I wasn't outside in the middle of it, but I've seen videos since then of concession stands being whipped around the grounds. And the rain was just torrential. The winds were fierce. And it was so loud, the rain beating on the, on the rooftop of, of Armstrong Court, the, the, I meant on, on Ash Court, um, that at, after the match with Sloane Stevens, where she won, she was unable to hear the on-court interview. She's like, I can't hear a word you're saying, so I'm just going to talk right now. I mean, it was, it was absolutely insane. Um, it would have, I know some people that did get out early, you know, around like 6 or 7 o'clock, and they were able to get back to where they were going fairly easily. But anything after that, and you were basically stranded for hours just trying to get out of there. So you say that um, people weren't prepared for how bad it was going to be. In fact, uh, there were all sorts of predictions of how bad it was going to be. Now, with weather, it doesn't always work out the way it's predicted. In fact, more often than not, it does not work out the way it was predicted. But I saw, I, I saw um, prognostications with color on maps that indicated there'd be bands of rain between five and eight inches of rain going across a huge swath of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York. I mean, I saw that the day before. Uh, you know, uh, we look at the president of the United States and we say, what do you mean you didn't know Afghanistan was going to go down in an hour and a half? Right. You know, yeah. and so I, in, in this well, case, this was on top of record rain in August where yeah. we had an oversaturated ground. In this case, I think people probably did know the Mets canceled their game that night, the day before the Mets canceled and the tennis wasn't canceled. Do you see the story yeah. about one of the Yankees broadcasters who got Michael like, Kay. He got he got stuck on his way home. Sterling. Yeah, John oh, John Sterling, Sterling? Okay. Yeah. just over just over the GW bridge, and then one of the other radio voices followed up to make sure he was okay and got in his jeep and ha kept him on the phone for twenty five minutes to find him, and he eventually found him along with say twenty five other stranded, uh, you know, stuck cars and got him home to his. So apartment. I mean, it's you know, yeah, it, 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 go ahead. I understand, you know, you could see the rain coming, you could see the forecast, but it's still sort of this incomprehension of like, because what happened had never really happened before. I mean, that amount of rain, I, again, you're looking at, at, at main streets in Queens that were essentially rivers and cars flooded everywhere, drifting down the street as, again, yes. as if it was the Potomac. Yes. And so, and, and part of that in the tournament too is, is I think this is thinking and this feeling of like, we have to get all these matches in because we've got so much to go. So, you know, they really played that game of running it up to the line and trying to play all those matches during the course of the day. They got a bunch in really before the rain started. Um, so, and, so that's the fine line I guess you try and walk is trying to get everything in. But when it's historical rain like that, I think they're obviously going to go back to the drawing board and say, look, if, if we have threats like anything similar to this in the future, we've got to re reconsider how we do this. The nightly news last night that I watched, the NBC nightly news, uh, the first 10 minutes were about weather and about extreme weather and how 
This has been happening with greater frequency in the last yeah. X amount of years and is going to happen with far greater frequency in the next X amount of years. And I do remember reading stories before the remnants of Ida got to where you are right now, saying this could be catastrophic rain and could be once in a hundred year rain. I mean, that was out there. This is what happened two or three times. This happened in, in Ellicott City in Maryland, oh, where right. the entire downtown was flooded away. And they said beforehand, boy, this, this could be bad. But now we're getting those once in a hundred year storms. All the time. All the Every time. Two I know years. that's yeah. all that's the time. Sort of a, a term used as a barometer for this. And you look locally, we're now having places that are, are basically getting tornadoes on yeah. the same day in the, you know, one calendar year later. Tornado in Annapolis. From this, yeah. uh, we were very lucky in Washington D.C. We had rain, but nothing, nothing substantial, nothing like what happened in New Jersey and Long Island and New York and Pennsylvania. Big, nothing. big thank you to the Jay Quina Group, the locally uh, local here in Maryland, who's done great drainage work now on both of our homes. That's good to know. Um, but as long as Nigel, as long as I have you on, and as long as I've announced to the people that you've been working at the U.S. Open, this allows me to talk about Stephanos Sitsipas, <laughs> who I loathe. Loathe. You're not, you're not I hate yet. him worse than Nick Kyrgios, and I loathe <laughs> Nick Kyrgios. One second, I'm just going to open up my uh, my messenger. I hate Sitsipas. If I played against him, I would hate him beyond comprehension. I believe that although he may be within the letter of the law in terms of these bathroom breaks, it is strategic. It is meant to flummox his opponents. I'd like to get a record of what happens. When he gets back, he bageled the guy the other night. He yeah, had just Marino. lost the third set, took his usual eight-hour bathroom break to change <laughs> clothes and whatever else he does, and then came back and bageled the guy. He beat Andy Murray when he came back. He's hated. Like, if, you, if people think on the golf tour that Patrick Reed was hated and Bryson DeChambeau is hated, I assume that this guy Sitsipas is hated. I think you're going to probably make an, a defense of him but I think what he does is loathsome. I mean, it is complete. It's, it's, it's so far out of the realm of other sports. It's unimaginable that Rory McIlroy would mark his ball on the green and before he putted, take 10 minutes to go to the bathroom. It's unimaginable that Clayton Kershaw would be on the mound and facing a batter with a 2-2 count would say, I'll be back in a while. Sit here and wait for me. It's unimaginable that Tom Brady at third and one would say, I've got to go freshen up. You know, Sitsipas changes his clothes. This is not a spa. What is this guy doing? How can you be allowed to do this? Well, Go ahead. Take all the time you want. Well, the, the problem is is what the USTA rules, the, the, the rules in tennis, I, I suppose. It says you're allowed two bathroom breaks in a five-set match. Um, and it just says a reasonable time. And that's the crux of the problem right there. There's no yes. specific time limit. And so everybody's de definition of what reasonable is is different. And so Zitzipas can say, well, yeah, eight minutes for me, that's reasonable. Other players could say, look, two minutes is reasonable. The bathroom facility is right off the court. So it does not seem in all practical senses that it should take that long amount of time. I think there's a certain amount of gamesmanship there. He's not using there. it to go to the bathroom alone. 
He's changing his clothes. It's like if well, I'm up in the attic and I scream to Tracy, wardrobe? Well, what? No, but the examples well, you're giving are a little bit flawed because within the, within the parameters of baseball inning changeovers and during a golf tournament, there are natural breaks where you, if you are Tiger Woods back in his heyday, he would change shirts during a round of golf. There, you know, you medically are supposed to take off, say, soaked shirts so that your, your body can... Everybody else does that on the court. Sure. Or, That's why I'm saying if you're doing it on the court or maybe off the court, you have to have those systems in place so it can't just be the I'm taking my bathroom break now and maybe you have to call it something else and, and put the rule in place as to where it exists that is given by the event, not by the player's request. Are you going yeah. to defend Sitsipas? Because you like him. You, you I, like I, him. That I know may, you do. That may I've, change the way you wear whites. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I very much do like Sitsipas. He's, he's a terrific yeah. player. And I've, I've spoken with him. He's a very charming individual. Um, but this is, this is becoming an issue. Now, I talk, first of all, I want to say to everybody. It's not becoming an issue. It's an issue. Well, I want, to commend, I want to commend the piece that Liz Clark wrote in the Washington Post because she really does, as she always does, a terrific job of She's sort of great. walking you through this. And, you know, Sitsipas was a victim of this at the, uh, at the French Open. This was what Djokovic did. He had dropped a set to Nadal in, uh, I think, the third set, and he came back and smoked Nadal in the fourth set to go to the finals and did the same thing against Sitsipas in the finals. So Sitsipas maybe took a look at that and said, well, if he did that, maybe I'll do it. Now, I think one of the bigger issues as well is the accusation of whether he's receiving coaching while he's yep. in there. Father's if he takes his and, cell phone in there and starts yeah. pounding away. And yeah. this really, the officials need to do a better job of that to make sure that you, if, you know, if you're going in there, here, take your shirt or whatever and change it. Although, as Michael just pointed out very correctly, players change shirts on, on the court all the time. In fact, Kevin Anderson did that the other night after that Sitsipas Manorino match. You know, it's not something that's terribly pretty a lot, but, you know, it's it's player doing that. And I did ask players and ex-players, look, is that something you really have to do? I mean, to me, you know, you, those are your clothes, you wear them. And they said, no, 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 no. You're so drenched in sweat that yeah. at some point you absolutely do have to do that. Doesn't take eight minutes. No, it, it doesn't. doesn't take eight minutes to change your shirt. Yeah, so it, it's sort of like he's found this loophole, and he's like, yes. look, it's not against the rules, so until you change the rules, I'm going to keep doing it. The play, he's going know. to be hated. He's well, going to be hated by fans and competitors alike, is my point. The fans certainly were booing him the other night, and he just sort of blows that off and says, look, they're passionate, you know, I'm passionate about the sport, so that's how it goes. Passionate. Right, right. Yeah, but, we're all uh, passionate. yeah it's disappointing because, again, I, I do like him and I don't like to see this black eye on, on his game, but, uh, but it is there. So, yeah. It, it, and really, it's, it's something the officials are going to have to look at and change those rules because, because that loophole that's in a reasonable time, I mean, that, that could be anything. Just wait till they start calling him Brooksy. Yeah. <laughs> Brooksy. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you. Very good. We'll go on with the regular show now when we return. Is it Jeff Passan is going to be with us? If that I is get correct. the order correct. Yes. Jeff Passan, when we return, I am Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. This is the Simply Safe ad when Simply Safe Home Security's founders, Chad and Eleanor Lawrence, designed their first security system in their own kitchen. They did it for a very personal reason. Their friends had just had their home broken into. They were struggling to find a security system that was simple to set up and would make them feel safe again. Making people feel safe is what Simply Safe has been doing ever since that moment 15 years ago. A passion to protect people not only drives every engineering detail in its products, but it motivates every interaction with its customers. And the thing is, Simply Safe just makes it so easy. It takes about two minutes to customize the system on their website, simplysafe.com/tony. 
Simply Safe has highly trained security experts ready whenever you need them, whether that's during a fire, a burglary, a medical emergency, or even just when you're setting up the system. There's always someone there who has your back to keep you safe and make sure you feel safe. As listeners to this high quality program, you can save 20% on your Simply Safe security system and get your first month free when you sign up for interactive monitoring service. Just visit simplysafe.com slash Tony, spelled S-I-M-P-L-I, simplysafe.com slash Tony to customize your system and start protecting your home and family. That's simplysafe.com slash Tony. Use the code, people. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Tony Kornheiser Show. Dizzy on the track. This is Aria Mason. This is sent to us by Mark Whitlock, who's a little and knows the family. And Aria Mason says she gives us permission to play this song. It's called Kind of Love. Talent's obvious. <coughs> Absolutely obvious. Really good. She's really good. She plays in Jeff Passan, and there's a million things we could ask Jeff, and I don't know what we're going to get to, but I know where we're going to start. We're going to start with the New York Mets and what seems to be a devolving situation. The New York Mets had a new owner this year. His name is Steve Cohen. He promised he'd spend a lot of money, and he did. He spent a lot of money on Francisco Lindor, who stinks, basically, this year for the first time in his career. <laughs> and then at the trade deadline, he went and got Javi Baez, a professional baseball player who stinks and Javi Baez and Francisco Lindor and Kevin Pillar gave thumbs down to the fans, which Sandy Alderson said is not going to happen anymore. And they apologized afterwards, you know, because that's the way you have to do it. And then that same night, <clears throat> hours after going to the owner's house, the acting general manager got pulled over for a DWI. It's, you know, and their best player, Jacob deGrom, can't play. And he was the only guy really holding him up and keeping him above water in the standings. Jeff, take it in any order you want, but let's talk about the Mets. How was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? Yeah. I, I mean. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Like, it's, it, I mean, you left out the part where the Mets were actually in first place for yes. like the majority of the season and had a precipitous fall where they're now in third place and, and really have no chance to get back in. Um, I, I listen, I don't believe in curses, but if there's a cursed franchise out there, it's not the Chicago Cubs and it's not the Boston Red Sox. Uh, it's the New York Mets because I, I, I use I use this phrase to describe the Mets. It feels like there's just institutional rot, and that that there's been something festering there for a really long time. And when Steve Cohen came in and bought the Mets, uh, you know, it, it was like there were parties in the streets from Mets fans because. All of a sudden, the you know the blame that's been cast toward the Wilpon family, the owners for decades, 
it just wasn't allowed anymore because they weren't there. They were gone. The, you know, ding dong, the witch is dead and everything's going to be great now. But I think it also shows like you can't move large institutions quickly. And, and I'm not saying that the, the Mets have this problem here and that's why Zach Scott ends up uh, allegedly, you know, drinking and driving or, or the Mets have this huge problem uh, institutionally. And that's why Francisco Lindor and, and Javi Baez and Kevin Pillar are giving thumbs down. But all of this ties together in such a, a neat way that when, when you look, uh, did you know there's a book out by a, a writer named Devin Gordon who is, extremely talented talking about how essentially being a Mets fan is an exercise in futility. And it is what bonds all Mets fans together. And that's what it feels like when it's bad. It can't possibly get worse, but Oh wait. Yeah, actually it can. That's it's an interesting concept. Having been a Mets fan all my life, well, not all my life, but my young life, I was a Mets fan. I moved to Washington and I drifted away from the Mets and never really loved the Orioles, liked watching them, but then became a Nats fan and not a Mets fan anymore. But I do have a, you know, I do have one of those great jackets from the 1969 uh, championship team. Uh, I always felt that, you know, when the Mets started, they were indeed lovable losers and I agree right. that at some point in the 60s, you know, that, that tied everybody together. But then they won. They put together one of the greatest starting rotations ever. Them and the Baltimore Orioles yeah. had guys who could pitch. Uh, and for a while there, the pitching brought everybody through. And then they had a little bit of success with Gooden and Strawberry and people like that. And, you know, and they made the World Series a few times. My look at them right now, and it's not that I blame the owner, but boy, oh boy, the sort of overweening pride of the owner to be a little bit too public and a little bit too publicly confident. Don't you think, I mean, to just say, I can turn this around. It's just me. I can do this. I mean, shut up. Yeah. As you're saying, <laughs> it, 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 things don't move that quickly. They don't. They don't. You know, I think the, the answer to that is He's worth $14 billion, Tony, and he can yeah. go out there and outspend everyone. And yes. so if, if that is something that Steve Cohen is interested in doing, he kind of is capable of single-handedly changing the dynamic of the New York Mets. I, right. think, what he meant, I, think, I think what he meant by that, and, and listen, the Wilpon owners, uh, excuse me, the Wilpon family ran the New York Mets like they were a mid-market club and not like they were a team in New York that has all of the inherent advantages you could possibly imagine. And, and the Mets for a really long time now have played almost like the little brother to the Yankees. It's been part of their identity, right? And, and yes. I think the reason that, I think the reason everybody who's a Mets fan, was so excited about Steve Cohen coming in, is all of a sudden they felt like the little brother who had the big growth spurt over the summer and came back from camp and could beat the crap out of the older brother. And that's not here right now. That's not, not yet. showing quite yet. Nope. 
and Not and yet. the pa- patience in sports is an extremely hard commodity to come by. You think that when something changes, whether it's when you get a new quarterback on a football team or when you have a free agent signing on a baseball uh, baseball team or when you have a, a new owner with a basketball team or any of those things being interchangeable, that uh, your lot in life is going to be different. No, the, you, the New York Mets are a giant ship. And if you turn the steering wheel too hard, you're going to crash into an iceberg. You have to know that things like this take time. And turning that giant ship that's been headed in the wrong direction for decades around is going to be a process that's not going to happen overnight. No, you're 100% right. It happens overnight in basketball. There's only five people on the court. It's different in baseball. It's different in football. It's just different. You know, I'm not saying the, the guy is well-intentioned. He's definitely well-intentioned, and he's probably having all the bad luck he's going to have right now, but he's having all the bad luck right now. Let me move on. Positive. I, I, I think, I think so. Here's, here's, one, here's one point that, that's important that you made. The, the public-facing nature of what Steve Cohen's doing is very interesting because he's casting himself, Tony, as a fan. He's casting yes. himself as a fan who is just... Uh, more or less parroting fan problems, right? Like he's the guy who says, uh, you know, the the only problem with this team right now or the real problem with this team right now is I've never seen such undisciplined approach at the plate. Then why did you trade for Javier Baez? That's, that's right. I, I mean, at least do some homework as to what a batter is going to do. He reminds me of, and I, and. To me, he's like a baseball version of Steve Ballmer. I find Steve Ballmer uh, incredibly annoying. That's just me personally. Other people love the guy a lot. (laughs) I just think his public behavior is dopey, actually. And and, um, and so anyway, I'm going to move on. Uh, Positive tests for the Red Sox. Guy on the Washington Nationals, Bob Boone, father of Aaron Boone, says, I quit because I'm not getting vaccinated. What, where are we? I I mean, I, because of the Cam Newton story, I declared myself on television a couple of times. I am for vaccine. I am one of those people, if I ran a team and you were not vaccinated and I could cut you, I would. I would, because I think you endanger the team. Okay, this is not golf or tennis. You're playing with other people. What's the deal with vaccinations in baseball? What are your thoughts on Bob Boone and your thoughts on the Red Sox? It's pretty late in the game to have a blow-up of COVID. I mean, Tony, hasn't it always been said that baseball is a reflection of the country writ large? And mm-hmm. uh, isn't this the country in which we're living at this point? Uh, and I think baseball, you know, you see the WNBA going out there. And I believe, I don't know if they're at 99 or a hundred percent vaccination at this point, but, uh, you know, sport wide, there has been buy-in you see the NFL and for all of the Cole Beasley's out there, I, I think they're at 93 or 94% of players and 99% of employees. Uh, the Red Sox are still one of six teams, I believe in baseball that can't even get to the 85% threshold inside of their clubhouse and among their players. And while the vast majority, I think there have been eight or nine positive tests among players, 
inside the Red Sox clubhouse. And from what I was told, I believe seven uh, of them, I think it's seven of eight or seven of nine, are vaccinated. Still, it's it's frustrating when when you see someone like Bob Boone or, or uh, at least one other employee for the Nationals who just straight up refuses it and is willing to get fired. It just makes you wonder what the hell is wrong with this country and, and how have we gotten to the point where something as fundamental as vaccines, where something is life saving historically as vaccines uh, have been politicized to the point where people are now willing to lose incredible jobs over it. I, I don't get it. It saddens me. But baseball also is a sport that compared to the WNBA, the NFL, the NBA has a far more conservative base of players. And I think that that conservatism politically is reflected in no better way than the fact that getting guys vaccinated throughout the sport has been, uh, it's been an exercise in futility in some places this year and an extraordinarily frustrating thing for the people in front offices who sit there and say the same thing that you and I do. Why? Why, why won't you take this shot? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I understand that you can't make players do it because of the collective bargaining agreement. Right. But you can make all your employees do it, and you should be able. I, I don't know that there's any cooperation here from the players. I mean, and this is fundamental no, no, to baseball. There's, there's, there's fundamental. Not. No. Yeah. No, I've, just nothing. And, and, and I think, you know, I, I've thought of my – no, I've never thought of myself as a player. I've put myself in, in their shoes, though, and thought in this game that's – so extremely difficult to win. Don't you want every little competitive advantage that you can possibly have? And, and, and it still feels to me like vaccination is a competitive advantage. The reality is we know breakthrough uh, cases exist. And yet, if you have a breakthrough case in baseball, you're going to be spending a whole lot less time on the injured list than you do if you're an unvaccinated positive. Uh, something no, like that's... that, to me, it, it's a teammate issue. How do I be the best teammate I can be? I agree with How that. How do I look out for the people who I'm in this clubhouse with? Uh, it's, not just, it's not just a matter of safety, but on top of the safety, it's a matter of being out there and being able to play. I, I mean, to me... When Kirk Cousins, and I'm switching sports now and I'm getting on a personal sure. soapbox, when Kirk Cousins says, I'll do anything I can for the team, no, you won't. Right. No, no, right. you won't. Take the vaccine. I, I mean, stop. Just don't tell me how, you know, how much you sacrifice for the team when you don't sacrifice anything. I'll get you out of here on a real live baseball question. I won't even make you talk about how great Max Scherzer is because we do that all the time. Will, I don't know how many games the Phillies have left with the Nats, but I don't think it's many. Will the Phillies catch the Braves? No, I don't think so. I think the, the Phillies do have the schedule advantage, which is helpful. Um, but I think in the end, the Braves are just a more talented team than the Phillies, and uh, Atlanta's going to be the one that, I say wins that division. Uh, I'm using air quotes with wins. That division. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. The, 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 that division stinks more than this show. 
I mean, it's really bad. <laughs> and on that note, we'll get out of here. That's funny. Thank you, Jeff. We'll talk. Jeff Paxson, boys and girls. Really good. Uh, We will take a break. When we come back, what do we have? Do we have emails and jingle when we come back? Tell me what we have, because we're doing the show out of order today. We have Jason Lock and Fora when we come back. Jason Lock and Fora when we return. I am Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. This is the Policy Genius ad. We are America's leading online insurance marketplace. Our mission is to help people get insurance right by making it easy for them to understand their options, compare quotes, and buy a policy all in one place. Home insurance, a.k.a. homeowner's insurance, is a financial protection policy that pays a lump sum if your house is damaged or destroyed by fire, weather, theft, or other disasters. Insurances against floods and earthquakes are separate products. Most homeowners who have a mortgage are required by their lender to buy homeowner's insurance. What's covered by a typical insurance policy for a single-family home is the property itself, The contents of the house, your personal belongings, the legal protection against accidents incurred by others at your house, and costs for temporary housing during repairs. You pay for the policy in the form of monthly or annual premiums. These costs can vary from insurer to insurer, so it's important to compare your options before you start. I really like that. They are telling you exactly what you're doing and why you are doing it. And now they say, go to policygenius.com. Answer a few quick questions about yourself and your property, and Policy Genius takes it from there. They'll compare rates from America's top insurers, from Progressive to Allstate, to find your lowest quotes. The Policy Genius team can look for ways to save you more, including bundling your home and auto policies. If they find a better rate than what you're paying now, they'll switch you over for free. So head to policygenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. This comes from Andrew Giordano. Not the Andrew Giordano who plays at Columbia, but the Andrew Giordano who's a longtime listener from New Jersey. His band is called Ruby Roses. It's an indie rock band with a pop mentality. The song is called Shipwrecked. It's from an album called Some New Paradise. And if you hear the echoes of Bruce Springsteen in this... Late summer nights. Probably you should. <laughs> yes. Because if you're going to be a Jersey band, you're going to hear the echoes of Bruce Springsteen at some point. Very lovely. Very lovely. Michael, if people like Ruby Roses want to send us their music, how do they do it? Send us your music by emailing it to jingles at com. And remember that you can hear it in its entirety when we're done yapping. Jason Lockenfour of CBS Sports joins us now. And this is our NFL preview of sorts. Um, we stayed away from exhibition games because I think they're stupid. Uh, I, I think that other people think they're important. Coaching staffs think they're important. Some reporters think they're important. I, I just thought they were stupid after a while and dopey, so we're not going to do that. But I will go to the biggest overview, and this is something that Jason has to think about when he goes on TV the first week of the season, which is what's the Number one story to you, the, like if you had to isolate and you said this is the one thing, if I have to look at one thing and one thing only, what is the one thing I'm looking at in the NFL this year, team by team oh, or, you know, whatever? Yeah. yeah. Um, boy. Well, I, I didn't mean to stump you. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't mean to stump you. You can list no, three no, or four things. I, but I, I I don't know if this is if I'm quite answering the right question or or mm-hmm. that this is truly 
sort of the one thing. But, you know, the, the, the nexus of COVID and everything, including the NFL, is, is, is still a thing. It's, it's real. I don't know. I'm not nearly smart enough to know all the different ways that it may sort of manifest itself and become a story for a certain locker room or for a certain weekend or for a certain team. But I, I also don't think it's it's going away. And at some point, will the, the, the league and the PA have to adjust um, its policies or its testing protocols uh, on the fly? I, I wouldn't be shocked. Um, will some things about this change? Will certain games be affected by it? Uh, whether that's exactly, you know, affecting when exactly it kicks off or affecting who exactly is available or affecting uh, a certain position group for a team and, and it really compromising them to some degree. I, I, I just have a hard time thinking, given the nature of this thing, um, where the numbers are in certain parts of the country, um, what we know, what we don't know, uh, some of the remarks that continue to be made by certain players. Um, it, it's we're still obviously in an, in a, a day and age that's unlike anything most of us can remember, and. I just, the the idea that this is like totally behind us or, you know, the pandemic's over or or whatever, unfortunately, it's just not. I thought the NFL handled it really well last year. I mean, I thought they did. And I I assume that they have contingency plans for everything again this year. That's that's my assumption. I'm not saying it's not going to have an effect because I think it will, like you think it will. But I think they handle it. I think sports in general handles it pretty well, don't you? I, I absolutely agree. Um, yeah, I, I do. But with where we are as a country, with with where certain individuals are, um, vis-a-vis their vaccination stances or some of the things that are said publicly. Um, I I just think we're still very much sort of in this thing, and uh, at some point in time, a team, maybe more than a team, is is probably going to be dealing with something that none of us could have fathomed or anticipated or, or ever imagined two years ago. Yeah, I, I mean, to, to this point about vaccination status... Um, and I know I talk about it a lot, but it, it's, it strikes me as something worth talking about. When Cam Newton was released, the question was, did uh, his vaccination status, which we assume to be unvaccinated, did that have any play in it? And Bill Belichick said he wasn't cut because of that. That's, nu- that's nuanced. OK, it might have been a factor. I actually agree with Urban Meyer when he said, hey, this is going to be a factor, of not course. the only factor, right. but this is going to be a factor. I believe it should be a factor because you're putting yourself in a position where you're going to be lost to the team. You're going to take other people down with you. Do you agree with that or do you think I'm crazy? I, no, I completely agree with that. And As much as part of this, um, you know, the, the league and the PA would say, well, 
we we agreed to these various protocols and these various procedures and um, the, the the these these various sort of marching orders in terms of uh, how we're going to deal with vaccinated and unvaccinated players and we collectively bargained it and decisions should not be made based on vaccination status. Okay, well, I get that that's, also, that that's part of what they've put down on paper, but, but you've also created these two very distinct, very different realities for what life will be like for those who have the shot and those who don't. Like, you, you, you guys, over a period of a lot of, of, of time, came to these very different conclusions about what a close contact and what a positive test mean for this category of players that's right versus these others so if you think that that's not now going to be uh intrinsically tied to what is going through people's minds when they make determinations about the status of these players and whether they're active roster or whether they're practice squad or whether they're just plain sent home uh, and released or waived, you're, you're, you're incredibly naive. No, of course they're thinking. There's a completely different sort of strata for availability and, and um, readiness to play and how quickly we might get them back. Like, yeah. Everybody's aware of it, and and it, it is a factor. And, you know, I understand where Bill Belichick's coming from, and he doesn't want to be fined, and he's going to answer certain questions with a degree of sort of uh, nuance and PR savvy or just plain I don't give a bleep that Urban Meyer was not willing to. But, he, of course, if you're, especially if you're talking about a backup quarterback, and the, the 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 sort of biggest thing, like the most important thing, the whole reason that people obsess about backup quarterbacks in the first place is that they're supposed to be plug and play. That at any given moment, with something that happens in practice or in the starting quarterback's daily life or when the starting quarterback's in the shower and he slips or – at any point, the backup quarterback is basically seen as being in bubble wrap. I'm old enough to remember the idea of COVID quarterbacks, right? And we're going to take a third guy, and we're going to keep him out of our entire building. We're going to keep him away from everybody because we just might need an emergency quarterback, and we want him to have familiarity with our concepts and familiarity with our players and be able to put him in at any, any given moment and, and have this whole thing not crumble. So, yeah, availability is the number one ability, especially when it comes to a backup quarterback. And the fact that something could happen to Hoyer and he's back in 48 hours and that same thing could happen to Cam Newton and he's back at best after five days, yeah, that's real. That's especially for that position. That's a factor. Oh, I, yes, yes. We're going to move off this because I agree with everything you're saying. I'll give you an easier question, I think. Buffalo was an emergent team last year. Yep. Buffalo really was. Who's the new Buffalo? Oh, the new Buffalo. Um, trying to think of a team because Buffalo's been on a, on a, on a fairly steady um, 
March. Now, they, they took a leap last year, and they exercised some demons, and they, they showed better at the end of a season maybe than they had the year before, certainly in, the, um, in their first couple of playoff games. But I feel like Buffalo had been marching towards uh, coming way out of the abyss and becoming a thing, becoming a factor, um, becoming something real. I don't know that I I feel quite as strongly about an emergent team as I as I would have maybe Buffalo um, a year ago. I think Washington is an interesting team. I I you know you you started this whole thing by saying preseason doesn't matter, and yeah. and I agree with you. And there's some people who might be freaked out about how bad that Ravens WFT thing looked. WFT played nobody. I mean, No, played, no starters. Played, nobody making the team. Nothing. I nobody. mean, that was – I, I don't even know how you make any judgments about that game because it was the first time Baltimore was really playing its starting offense and Washington's playing nobody, and then Dobbins goes down, and even Baltimore, you know, Harbaugh pretty much pulls the – pumps the brakes on, on this idea that we're going to have some, you know, real window into what our starting team looks like. And he pulls everybody. But when I look at that team on paper, when I look at the rest of that division, uh, and I look at the NFC in its totality, you know, I think there's, there's an opportunity there. Are, are they a complete team? Are they a great team? No. Um, they they have their warts, but I, I do think they're much improved. I, I do think when you look at the number of players they have who haven't played a particular position all that long and who flashed uh, really well last year and now have a normal off-season of coaching, a normal off-season of film study, a normal off-season of being able to spend time around your teammates and hang out long and you know, at the building and ask certain questions and, and really get um, the type of human availability of your coaches that's just different than sending a guy an email and saying, you know, can you jump on your tablet while I'm on my tablet? I'm, I'm, I, I do think that's a team that, that could, you know, they took a step forward last year because they follow that up with um, two steps forward this year. I, I, I don't think that's that's out of the question. And Outside of Tampa, I, I don't see a whole, you know, and, and you know, the West, the, look, that, the, the NFC West is, is pretty stacked. I don't know exactly the order that things are going to go there, but there's some quality teams out there. But I, I just think there's sort of a, 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 a possibility of somebody taking a leap there a little different than the AFC, where I, I think because of the, the – where the quarterbacks are, and because of what's been going on with some of these franchises, we 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 know that Kansas City is a super team. We know that the Bills are really good. We know the Browns have a really good roster. We know the Ravens with Lamar are are going to be in the playoffs, right? We know that Tennessee is still um, a, a, they're going to find a way to win their ten ten or eleven games now that the things expanded. Um, I just think it's it's a little different over there, and you know, outside of the five or six teams that I really like in the AFC, is there somebody else who's going to take this major leap? Like I think Denver could mess around and be 
a wild card team. Like I think Denver could be like Buffalo, you know, two years ago. Do I think they're going to be like Buffalo last year, where they, you know, they could have gone to the Super Bowl? No, I, 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 I don't. Um, but I, I just feel like in the NFC, once we get in that dance, I think it's going to be a little more wide open. Okay. All right, plug your radio show for us. Uh, you can listen to me bloviate and pontificate uh, about the NFL and <laughs> Major League Baseball and the U.S. men's national soccer team uh, and uh, even the NBA, which is not that far off, daily from 2 to 6 on Inside Access on 105.7 The Fan in Baltimore. If you're outside of our listening area, then you could certainly tune in in real time and stream us at 1057thefan.com or on the Odyssey app. Fantastic. Thank you, Jason. We'll talk to Thank you next you, week. Thank you, Tone. Appreciate you're on you, all the time now. All the time. Week right, after let's, week. Let's Jason, go. lock and four. Yeah, copper's ready. Oh, oh copper's happy. Is. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, we'll take a break. Thanks. When we come back, we will have email and jingle. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening, you're listening to the Tony Kornheiser Show. Ian Warrington, an emergency room doctor at Sibley Hospital. <laughs> There's a lot of talent in that body. A lot of talent. Who's going to do the Bethesda bagel ad? Nigel, are you going to do it or is Michael? Well, like Michael's there. I mean, he's, did, what, did you get Michael? the sandwiches again today? Oh, no. today, today was bagels. Uh, bagels with cream cheese, uh, yep. Bethesda Bagel. We go to the one located on Bethesda Avenue, 4819. Uh, we love Bethesda Bagel. You as well. If you uh, check out online, you can you can see locations around the area. What's so great is I always check and I go, yeah, I'm, I'm here to pick up uh, the, the Tony order the for Tony's show. And they always ask, what's the schedule? And I go, well, if you're open Monday, Wednesday, Friday next week, I don't want to tease your hand. But she goes, we're open every day. They're open every day. Every yes. day. Every day. Yes. That'll do it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say, Tom, get your plane right on time. I know your part will do fine. Fly down to Mexico. Do 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 Here I am, the only living boy in New York. I don't do that justice. That is Paul Simon singing to Art Garfunkel, okay? Using the name Tom because they used to be Tom and Jerry instead of Art. This is when Art Garfunkel was flying to Mexico to be in his first movie, or maybe second movie, Carnal Knowledge. I remember this. That is a haunting beautiful song. If you have never heard The Only Living Boy in New York, just stop listening to this and access it now. Am I right on this? That is yes. one of the best songs yes. that Simon and Garfunkel, who made a load of best songs, one of the best they ever did. Thanks to our guests today, Jeff Passan, Jason Lockenfora. Thanks to the sponsors, Simply Safe and Policy Genius. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. If you get the show through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Did you ever sing that song? Did you have occasion to sing that song? Oh, no, I, I would never touch that song. That is, that is out Only of my, Living Boy in New yeah. York. Woo, woo. Uh, from Mark Johnston in Pendleton, South Carolina. I think you're thinking of Homeward Bound. 
Yeah, I know you sang yeah. Homeward Bound, but I, which is also a gorgeous song. Yeah. Enjoyed listening to Tom Friedman discuss his experiences as a walking scorer at the BMW tournament. I had the opportunity to volunteer as a walking scorer at this year's BMW tournament on the Corn Ferry Tour in Greenville, South Carolina, and I can attest to the need to concentrate. One of my pros, Jonathan Hodge, teed off on a par three, and I turned my head to enter his shot, and the next thing... I know everyone's screaming and giving high fives. Hole in one, and I never saw it, and I'm the scorer. I next pushed the in-hole button and promptly heard an inquiry in my headset to confirm an ace. Yup, I said seven iron, but didn't mention I never saw a thing. Let's keep this between you and me. <laughs> From Sam Davidson in Simsbury, Connecticut, the futility of rooting for the Mets is hard enough. Now they've signed Brad Hand. What's next, Wander Swero? From your mouth to God's ears on that. Get rid of Wander Swero here. From Tony Smith, and do this in the official weightlifter voice. He wants more golf. More <laughs> golf. From Cole in Nashville. Do you remember several years ago when the mailbag was taken over by people submitting random tidbits of their days? The emails went something like, I wore a red shirt today, and that was the entire email. Finally, Mr. <laughs> Tony had to put a stop to it. Well, I think that we've reached the point with all of the I have the same name as a serial killer emails. <laughs> stop it already. <laughs> From Jose Vergara in Beaufort, South Carolina. Please let me definitively end the horrible name debate. I have the most popular Hispanic name in the world, Jose. And even though my desk has a nameplate with said name and I wear a name tag with my name, I never get called by my given name. I get called Julio, Jesus, Jorge, Javier, Juan, Esteban, Enrique, and Carlos, but never my actual given name. Clients just pick a random Hispanic name and go with it. The worst is when I had a sign on my desk that read Hablo Espanol, and a client asked me how do I pronounce my name. I said, well, I get that a lot. It's Jose Vergara. Uh, and then the client proceeded to pick up the Hablo Espanol sign and ask, how do you get that pronunciation out of this? This encounter led to my employees calling me Mr. Hablo for several years. So with all due respect to the Jeremiah's of the world, please stay in your lane. From Adam Benson in St. John's, Newfoundland. And we did this the other day because I didn't know where, which St. John's we were talking about. He said, I live in St. John's, Newfoundland. However, there is a St. John, New Brunswick. I assume you'll get a few emails on this, but I thought I would pass it along. And from Mark Gorman in Fredericton in New Brunswick in Canada. Correction. The city of St. John, never abbreviated as ST period unless to purposely irk its residents, is indeed in the Canadian Maritime Province of New Brunswick, as you, as, an, as you had initially thought last week. It is known for, among other things, Moosehead Breweries, the Irving family, and its reversing falls as a result of the highest tides in the world on the Bay of Fundy. St. John's, on the other hand, and this is the one with, with ST period, is a port city. One is St. John and one is St. John's, obviously. St. John's, on the other hand, is a port city in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. St. John's is known for, among other things, George Street, their brand of sea charity music and the friendly Newfoundlanders who inhabit it. Contrary to what many Canadians west of the Quebec border may falsely believe, Newfoundland and Labrador is not a maritime province, but rather one of the four Atlantic provinces, along with the three maritime provinces. The Maritimes consist of New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and Nova Scotia only. You can think of the Maritimes as kind of like New England. That way it overlays multiple states, but isn't often denoted on maps. I'm taking this opportunity to volunteer as the official TK Show fact checker for all things maritime and Atlantic Canadian provinces. However, I'm guessing you're going to hear from more than a few genres on this. That's a really good one. From Matt Little, Dr. Tony, I'm amazed at the legs on the naming burden discussion. 
But I'd like to point out to the center field fence and call my shot with my own. My last name is Little. What good could come of that, especially in elementary and middle school? Squadouche is the correct answer. But that all ended with this show. I'm convinced that the only reason I've had five emails read on the air by you is because of my last name. When I visited Chatter in 2018 and got a chance to meet you and you remarked, wow, a little name Little as we posed for a picture. However, I do have to admit that you're surprised at my last name every time an email is read. Has me feeling a little bit like Homer Simpson when he's repeatedly introduced to his own boss, Montgomery Burns, who never could seem to remember Homer's name. But it should turn out a bit better for you than it did for Mr. Burns. Um, Stephen Good, Fayetteville, Arkansas. The Beltway Beltway Mitteron was DFA'd by the Cincinnati Reds on Tuesday. In my previous emails, you read jokes I made about you boys, Southern Thunder and Gio Gonzalez, in their post-Nats career. I cannot bring myself to do that about Doolittle. I was wholeheartedly frustrated by the blown saves, and I went to Virginia Tech, so I'm always primed and ready to disparage a Wahoo in their darkest hour. However, it is undeniable that he was a key to the Nats winning the World Series. During the 2019 regular season, he had 29 saves and 35 opportunities. In the NLDS, he had a 2.70 ERA in three games with a hold. In the NLCS, he had a 2.25 ERA in three games with two holds and one save. In the World Series, he gave up zero runs in three games and got the save in game one. He was not perfect, and he deserved much of the criticism he got from talking heads, writers, and fans. But he owned up to his shortcomings in post-game interviews and came up big in the postseason. He also handled the online vitriolic harassment and threats from so-called Nats fans in 2020 with dignity and class, even though he would have been absolutely within his rights to fire right back at him with a 91-mile-an-hour fastball to the head. Yes, only 91. Okay, one joke. My memories of Doolittle will be a mix of glee and frustration, but I wish him well. Anyway, I look forward to writing to you in the future months or years about your other favorite natural leavers, Jave Guerra, Wander Over There, O, Brad Hand, Trevor Rosenthal, and Will Harris. Thank you. Stephen Good, Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you're out on your bike time, as always, everyone, do wear white. Okay, we wound up 5 and 11. Not very good. Uh, but there were some worse than us. I guess that's one positive way to look at it. We weren't the worst team in the league. Dizzy on the track. Oh, no. No. Period. 
You said there was one, but really was two So What's you two? got the dues, cause you broke the rules So I break the news hey. You lost a real one, sucks to be you, yeah It sucks to be you right now Say it sucks to be you right now What is love to you? Uh-huh. Is it when you stay true? Do you want me looking at them? Well, I'm feeling on you Tell me what is love to you? What you know? Is it doing what you want when you want to? Will you hold me down when I'm feeling down? Is it something on you? I wanna know your kind of love I wanna know, I you wanna know Yeah.